Well, good morning and welcome once again to our Family Bible Hour. It's always a great joy to see and to meet with the saints of God on the Lord's Day and to enjoy one another's fellowship. But more so, it should be for all of us the highlight of the week. For the Lord's Day is the day on which we meet with our Lord and our Savior. And therefore, we should all be ready with attentive minds and open hearts to receive the ministry of his word. There should never be other activities taking priority over our meeting with the Lord. Sickness and job obligations, however, cannot be avoided, but all other personal activities surely can be postponed for a few hours until after the church services are over, I would think. Last week, we had the privilege of hearing our brother Ben Volman give a very excellent and a passionate sermon on the book of Philemon, which I'm sure uh, greatly blessed all of us who heard it. And if for some reason you missed it or would like to hear it again, then I encourage you strongly to listen to it on sermon audio once we get it loaded. I don't know if we're going to be able to load this one on. We've had some trouble lately. This week, we once again resume our studies on the book of Exodus with chapter 4, verses 1 to 31 being our main text for the sermon. And as always, I would like to thank uh, Luke for reading this passage for us earlier on this morning. It's really appreciated, Luke. Thank you for doing so. So if you still have your Bibles handy, would you please turn with me to Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 31. And before we begin, we'll turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here again this morning. And we pray that as we open thy scriptures this morning, that the Spirit of God will be pleased to speak to each and every one of us according to thy will for us. Help us to understand the text before us. For we ask it all in his name and for his sake. Amen. In our last uh, message on the book of Exodus, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. And if you recall in that presentation, we saw the call of Moses by God who manifested himself in a burning bush, which burned but was not consumed. And in that passage, we saw how the Almighty interacted with Moses. He first of all reminded Moses that the ground on which Moses stood was holy ground and therefore commanded Moses to remove his shoes. Secondly, God identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. This, of course, caused a great fear to overcome Moses such that he hid his face in verse 6. And thirdly, the Lord told Moses that he, God, had seen the affliction of his people, Israel, in Egypt, and that he was going to bring them all out of Egypt, verses 6 to 9, and that he was going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. And fourthly, God told Moses that he, Moses, was going to be the one whom God would send to Egypt to accomplish all of this. Before God had completely unfolded his plan, 
Moses objected to God's selection of men by asking in verse 11, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now Moses at this stage was completely bewildered as to why God should want him to go. After all, he had been out of touch with Egypt for 40 years. And he had escaped from Egypt in the first place because his life had been in danger after he had murdered uh, an Egyptian who was inflicting uh, physical harm on a Hebrew brother. And so these last 40 years, Moses spent simply herding sheep for his father-in-law. He was married now and had a family. Why him? And what if continued to Moses, I were to go and the children of Israel were to ask me, what is the name of this God who sent you? And God replied, then you tell them that I am that I am sent you. The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever and this is my memorial unto all generations, verse 15. Before the chapter concludes, God tells Moses in advance that although the people of Israel will believe him, the king of Egypt will not let his people Israel go. Therefore, God will have to smite Egypt with many wonders and plagues but that when they finally leave, they will not leave empty-handed. God will give, we're told in verse 21, this people, that is Israel, favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty. In other words, Israel would leave Egypt with much wealth. Now we come to the fourth chapter of the book of Exodus and the main text for our message this morning. This is nonetheless a continuation of the same discussion in chapter 4, even though we are starting a new chapter. So chapter 3 and 4, basically the same thing. But as this chapter unravels, we see that Moses has a great deal of reluctance in accepting the commission. At first, this task to which he had been called seemed overwhelming and impossible to accomplish. His heart told him in no uncertain terms that he not only was not capable of such a feat, but that also he was too frightened to even contemplate it. Now, each one of us can identify with Moses here, I'm sure. For there were times when we too have been asked to do something that seemed impossible to us at the time. But if we were in the Lord, then somehow we seem to have found the courage and the strength through God's grace to accomplish it. But one of the byproducts of the fallen sin nature is fear, or at times even cowardice which more often than not prevents us from accomplishing great things. And so here we see Moses giving his first objection in verse 1, that the people will not believe him or listen to him. 
And yet this excuse was a very poor one. For God previously told Moses in chapter 3, verse 18, that they, the people, will hearken to thy voice. The sin of unbelief is the worst of all possible sins, for it questions the integrity of the Almighty and is often met with very serious consequences. But God's patience and grace is reflected here in the Lord's response to Moses, verses 2 to 5. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and caught it. And it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. Now when God sends someone with a mission to accomplish something, he always empowers them and authenticates their message by unmistakable signs and wonders as he does here. What was a simple shepherd's crook, a piece of dead wood that had no life in itself, was miraculously transformed into a living serpent. And by Moses' reaction, it would seem that this creature may have faced him and made some menacing gestures at Moses. For we are told that Moses fled from it. Now, my guess is that this must have been a very strong and dangerous kind of serpent to have caused Moses such fear. For he was surely accustomed to seeing many serpents in the desert during his 40 years as a shepherd, and may have had to destroy many of them himself. But this one was no ordinary serpent. But no sooner had he fled from it, than the Lord then commanded him to put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. But the Lord would give Moses yet another miracle to authenticate his calling. For that is always God's principle of witness. In the face of two or three witnesses shall a matter be settled. And so in the next two verses, verses 6 to 7, God performs a miracle of healing leprosy. He instructs Moses to put his hand into his bosom or inside his outer gar garment and then take it out. And when he removed it, it was leprous as snow. This was leprosy of the worst kind in its worst stage. And then as the Lord instructed him, Moses put it inside his bosom once again, and when he removed it, it was perfectly clean again. This miracle was very significant, for it forebode that God was going to bring some very sore diseases upon Egypt in the process of freeing his people. But God adds yet another miracle to ensure that the people will believe. And so in verse 9, God gives Moses the ability to turn water into blood. 
And how frightening that miracle must have been to see water instantly turning into blood, both of them reflecting life forces. Water to sustain life and blood to give life. For we are told in Leviticus 17, uh, 11, the life is in the blood, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Blood speaks of that precious blood of our Savior that would be shed one day for the remission of all of our sins. But please notice how Moses still resists the call by his next objection, verse 10. O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. What was still preventing him from going? God had assured him that the people would believe him through the miracles he would perform. At this stage, the reason for his hesitation could no longer be considered humility. Though he complained that he was slow in speech and not eloquent, yet we read in Acts 7, verse 22, in Stephen's dissertation to the unbelieving Jews that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. Was it perhaps what we all struggle with? Pride. The fear of possible failure sometimes seizes us so strongly that it is impossible to distinguish it from cowardice. For there is a bit of cowardice in each one of us, no matter how much we might want to deny it. But we will never know if we can overcome it unless we have all other options removed from us. And that is exactly what God was doing with Moses here. He was removing all his options, all his excuses, because as God, he already had a solution for all of them. Now, what was really at stake here was Moses' faith in the one who was sending him. Fear of failure is always removed as faith in our own abilities is replaced by faith in God's abilities. And so the Lord continues to reason with Moses in the next few verses, reminding him that it is he, God, who performs or forms man's mouth and gives him the ability to speak or not to speak, and that he, God, will be with thy mouth and teach thee what thou shalt say. Verse 12. But when Moses still resisted and replied, O my Lord, I uh, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him whom thou wilt, the anger of the Lord kindled against Moses. Because what Moses was saying here was this, send somebody else, Lord, for surely you can find somebody else more qualified than me. Nevertheless, the Lord continues to reason with Moses. He tells him in the next few verses, 
14 to 17, that he, God, will send Aaron, his brother, with him. And by the way, as we read the scriptures, we find that Aaron was already notified before God even had this conversation with him. Aaron has been in Egypt all this time, and he was a Levite. Therefore, he has many contacts and is well known of his people. Furthermore, Aaron would be Moses' spokesman, for we are informed that he can speak well. You, Moses, will tell Aaron what to say, and Aaron will tell it to the people. He will be, so to speak, your mouthpiece, and you will be to him instead God. Verse 18. Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and notice, Moses is finally relented, accepted, but he does not tell his father-in-law of his purposes. Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said unto him, Let me go, I pray thee, and return unto my brethren which are in Egypt, and see whether they be yet alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Thus, having obtained both favor and permission from his father-in-law, Moses begins to pack up his family for the long journey back to Egypt. But please notice here the respect and the honor which Moses pays his father-in-law. Though Moses was not obligated to ask for permission to leave, as many believe today, yet out of respect for his wife and for the kindness which Jethro had shown him these past 40 years, Moses could do no less. Even later on, when Moses achieves the pinnacle of his greatness, he continues to humbly honor and respect his father-in-law, as we shall see in Exodus 18.7. Such honor and respect for one's parents reflects one's integrity of character, and brings glory to God at the same time, for such was the Almighty's fifth commandment. The Lord once again meets with Moses before he leaves Midian, and informs him that all the men are dead which sought thy life. And just as the Lord commanded him, Moses took his family and headed for the land of Egypt with the rod of God in his hand. Now, once again, before Moses reaches Egypt, the Lord reminds Moses in verses 21 to 23. When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. Final instructions are always the most important instructions. Notice first of all the expression, Thus saith the Lord. In verse 22, 
This is the very first time that this expression is used in scriptures by men. Afterwards, it is used innumerable times by the prophets of God. And the importance of this phrase must never be overlooked. For what it is saying is this, that everything that I am about to tell you is the gospel truth. Every word of it is what the Lord told me to tell you. So you better pay attention if you know what's good for you. We take so lightly what God has said nowadays. It is no wonder why our society finds itself without a moral compass. The professing churches of Christendom are no better off than the rest of society today either. They have substituted all sorts of perversions for the preserved word of God and no longer are certain of what God really said or really meant. But the Almighty who created this marvelous universe by the power of his word is still able to keep all his promises concerning his word. Then verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled, Matthew 5.18. And so God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh word for word what God told him to say. However, it seems for some reason Moses did not inform Pharaoh about the slaying of his firstborn until after the ninth plague of darkness. The slaying of the firstborn was the tenth and final plague, the one which finally released the children of Israel. Next, we come to a most baffling passage of Scripture in verses 24 to 26. It seems to be inserted in a most unusual place, but upon closer consideration, we may be able to make some sense out of it here. We have, it seems, prior to these verses, a most positive rapport between Moses and the Lord. The Lord has commissioned Moses to carry out a most incredible task, that of delivering a nation from bondage and leading them all to a new promised land. The Lord had encouraged Moses for this mission by irrevocable promises and also equipped him with supernatural wonders and miracles. He had even secured Aaron to be with him so that the two of them would be an added encouragement to each other. And then suddenly, at an inn where Moses stopped for lodging, the Lord, we are told in verse 24, met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off, uh, cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he, that is the Lord, let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband thou art because of the circumcision. Twice she calls Mo uh, Moses a bloody husband. So what are we to make of all of this? First of all, let us notice a key word, circumcision in verse 26. 
When God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, he sealed that covenant with the token of circumcision so that every male child on the eighth day was to be circumcised. When that requirement was first made, Abraham at 90 years of age was circumcised as well as Ishmael, who was already 13 years old at the time. And every male that was born in Abraham's house, Genesis 17, 23 to 27. And any male who was not circumcised, we are told in Genesis 17, 14, that the uncircumcised man-child whose flesh of his foreskin is not circumcised that soul shall be cut off from his people. Another word, slain. For he hath broken my covenant. God took this very seriously. Now Moses himself would have been circumcised as a child already, but his son was not. And why, might we ask? For one, Moses married a Midianitess. She may have refused to allow Moses to circumcise their son at such a young age. And Moses may have succumbed to her wishes. To her, this circumcision did not have much meaning. But for Moses, it was sin. And God always keeps his word, would now have to slay both Moses and his young son. Now, for some reason, Moses could not bring himself to circumcise his son, even here where his life depended on it. But rather, it was Zipporah, his wife, who circumcised their son. And after having done so, berated Moses, calling him a bloody husband twice. This, it seemed, to appease the destroying angel and so he let them go. And herein is a lesson to all who will hear. If we have sinned, then the Bible tells us in Numbers 32, 23, that we can be sure that our sin will find us out, and that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 6, 23. And sometimes God allows us to wallow in our sin or sins for a long period of time before he brings judgment. And so we all need to walk circumspectly as believers, even though Christ has already paid our penalty. But the consequences of those sins are never removed, and we need to realize that. Then the next few verses suddenly change just as abruptly and see the long-awaited reunion of two brothers who have been separated for 40 years. But there is no more Zipporah and the child. They have been sent back, it seems, to Jethro. Verses 27 and 28. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him.
and all the signs which he had commanded him. Notice that Aaron showed no reluctance whatsoever in coming to Moses, but rather he made haste and met Moses at the Mount of God. His love for his brother and excitement to see him again was a wonderful tonic of encouragement for Moses at this stage, especially after the harrowing encounter with the destroying angel of the Lord. And so the chapter ends with the two brothers gathered in Egypt with all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed and they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their affliction. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped. And so we come to the end of our message this morning. And in light of the announcement I made this morning concerning the legislation that is in the process of being passed, I've been deeply bothered by the effects that it may have upon this little assembly. And so before I step down from this platform, let me ask you this. When you listen to the word of God being preached, does it do anything for you? Are you awakened to your shortcomings and pressed with a desire to change? Is your soul refreshed when you hear of God's love and faithfulness to his people? And as a result, you're drawn closer to him and have a desire to please him more? Or do you politely listen to the sermons and then go about your affairs as usual, completely unaffected by his word? There's a passage in Ezekiel verse 30, or chapter 33, verses 30 to 32, that seems quite reminiscent of today's church gatherings. Also, thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses and speak one to another, every one to his brother, saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that cometh forth from the Lord. And they come unto thee as the people cometh, and they sit before thee as my people, and they hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do them not. Let's pray. Father, we thank thee so much for this precious word that we call the Holy Bible. We thank thee that thou hast divinely preserved every word of it and for a reason. It is for our admonition. And Father, we ask thy forgiveness for our negligence in 
avoiding the study of it more diligently than we ought to. Help us, Lord, to realize that perhaps our time is coming to a close where we may be able to freely present the gospel of salvation where we might have free access to the ministry of thy word on radio or television. Help us, Lord, to take every advantage we can of every opportunity that is offered to us to learn thy word better and to get to know thee better. We thank thee for this morning and for allowing us this joy and privilege of gathering together as thy people to remember our blessed Savior and what he has accomplished for each of us. And we pray that our love for him will supersede all other loves that we may have in this world. For we ask it in his name and for his glory.